me, the, uh, the love and the greetings from my, my home church, a Cornerstone. You know, earlier this week, uh, I, was, uh, I was texting a friend. It's what we old people do, you know. Uh, we just spend all our time in a, on the phones texting each other. I was texting a friend, I think it was just on Thursday, and uh, I was telling him that I was coming here this evening, and he immediately replied uh, along these lines. Oh, dear, he said. Oh, dear. That could be very, very awkward. Whatever happens. Now, you see, ever since we moved to Nottingham, I've had something of a soft spot for my local football team. <laughs> Am I allowed to mention Notts County here this evening? Are you able to share even a little bit in, in the joy that I felt uh, late yesterday afternoon? No, no. Okay, all right, okay. I'm sorry I mentioned it. I haven't really got off to a very good start this evening, have I? Let's turn to God's Word, shall we? 1 Samuel chapter 3. It would be very useful if you have it open in front of you. And before we look at it together, let's pray, shall we? Eternal God, we praise you and thank you this evening for your ancient yet ever-modern word. And how we pray this evening that as we look at your word together, we may behold wonderful things from this passage to the praise and honor and glory of the Lord Jesus. Amen. I wonder, have you ever thought about the state of family life in this country and shaken your head in despair? Or perhaps more personally, have you ever considered your own family life, whether your close-knit family or your wider family, and thought, it wasn't meant to be like this. It really could and should have been so much better. Well, if you've ever thought such thoughts, I want you to take great encouragement from this evening's reading. For here we have two people, an elderly priest, Eli, and a young boy, Samuel. Two people who were members of less than satisfactory families. And yet, and yet, God used them, even then, to fulfill his promises for his people, Israel, in days of terrible ungodliness. My friends, we don't have to belong to perfect families to be used by God. Take Samuel, for example. 
We read in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel that his mother, Hannah, was one of Elkanah's two wives. But straight away, in verse 2 of chapter 1, we read that Penenai, that's Elkanah's other wife, Penenai had children, but Hannah had none. Hannah had none. Now every year, this family unit would go to Shiloh and to worship and to offer sacrifices. But the scripture also tells us that Penenai would always provoke Hannah, as the scripture says, in order to irritate her. Year after year, they would go to Shiloh, and Hannah would be, would be driven to tears. So much so that we read on one such occasion, Hannah made a vow to God. God, if you were to give me a son, I will give him back to you. Now the elderly priest, Eli, witnesses this and prays that God would answer her request. And sure enough, Hannah becomes pregnant and the boy Samuel is nursed and weaned and then is brought back to the temple at Shiloh so that his whole life should be given over to the Lord. Can you see? Samuel, he was born into a situation, he was born into a family where there was so much pain and anguish, where there was so much rivalry and heartache. He was born into a family where there was bitterness and disharmony. And God was to use him in the most remarkable ways. And then there's Eli, the priest. We read in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel that he had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. These two sons, because they were sons of Eli, the priest, they too were, were priests. But they played fast and loose with the temple rites. They showed no concern for accepted moral norms. They slept with the women who served in the temple. Now, Eli, the, their father, he rebuked them for their evil, wicked deeds, as the scripture tells us. But the sons didn't pay him any attention. So God decrees that the privileged position given to Eli and his family would be taken away. God was going to raise up someone else because of the sins of, of Phineas and Hophni and also because of their father's inability to control them. Even so, God was going to use this, I believe, godly priest, but a weak priest for one last time here in 1 Samuel 3. Can you see? Two people, Eli and Samuel, part of two very different but difficult and troubled families. 
They were going to be brought together by God so that his purposes could be fulfilled. Isn't that a great encouragement for us all? God can and does use us even when our family life is not what it should be. So what can we learn for our own lives from this uh, very familiar passage, a passage I'm sure many of us learnt at our mother's knee or in Sunday school years ago. Well, the first major lesson that I want us to see this evening is this. It is a terrible thing when God withdraws from his people. It is a terrible thing when God withdraws from his people. Look at verse 1. We read, In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. It seems that the sin which was part and parcel of these two families was also rife in the nation as a whole. Indeed, what was going on in these two families seems to be a kind of microcosm of what was happening nationally. And God's punishment on Israel was that he withdrew his word. It was his judgment on his people. The old Bible commentator, Matthew Henry, puts it rather quaintly. He writes, The impiety and impurity that prevailed in the tabernacle and no doubt corrupted the whole nation had provoked God to withdraw the spirit of prophecy. You know, there are some people who think that when God rebukes us or when God admonishes us, it's a sign that he doesn't love us. You know, they think along these lines. Oh, God wouldn't say those things to us if he really loved us. But that's not true. It is a sure sign that he loves us when he says such things because he wants the very best for us. No, we should be worried. We should be worried about God not loving us when he leaves us to our own devices, when he withdraws from us. There's a very significant uh, passage of scripture in the opening chapter of, the, of Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, there Paul describes how God's wrath is revealed against godlessness and wickedness. And Paul writes these words, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. And that verb, gave them over, is repeated two verses later. God gave them over to shameful lusts. And again, two verses later, he gave them over to a depraved mind. My friends, when God leaves us to it, that's when we should be fearful. That's when we should be fearful of God's judgment on our lives. In those days, we read, the word of the Lord was rare. 
But we always have God's word, don't we? We always have God's word, the Bible. It's always with us. So that's not a problem for us, is it? Well, God's word can become rare because of problems on the receiving end, because of problems with us. As Dale Ralph Davis, the well-known Old Testament commentator, has put it, starvation may not come from absence of food, but from lack of appetite. Shall I say that again? Starvation may not come from absence of food, but from a lack of appetite. So what about us? Do we still have that same hunger for the scriptures that we used to have? Do we still listen avidly to what God has to say to us, Sunday by Sunday, indeed day by day? Or is the word of the Lord rare for us? My friends, if God appears silent, it's not because he hasn't spoken. It's because we aren't listening. And the warning is there for us all. But this brings us on to our second lesson that we can learn from this passage this evening. And it's this. It is a wonderful thing when there is a genuine partnership in God's word. It's a wonderful thing when there's a genuine partnership in God's word. In the quietness of the early hours, God speaks to the young Samuel. But the inexperienced boy doesn't recognize the divine voice. Because, as verse 7 tells us, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. In other words, Samuel had not yet had a personal experience of Yahweh. But Eli had. Eli had. And on the third occasion that the boy runs to his elderly friend, Eli realizes what is happening. God is speaking. I wonder, did the priest fear the worst for himself and his family along the lines of what had been told to him in chapter 2? Well, we don't know. But it... It didn't hinder him from helping his young friend to respond to God's call. As one writer has put it, Eli is pictured in this chapter as graciously mentoring the gifted young Samuel. What a truly wonderful thing it is when God's people work together to further his kingdom. And it is especially important that those of us who are getting on in years encourage and nurture the next generation. Eli could have seen Samuel as a threat, but he resisted that temptation and helped his young friend to take the next steps 
on his spiritual journey. Have you ever come across the name of Pearl Good? Does she ring any bells to you? Pearl Good. No, not many people have heard of her. Back in 1949, she had reached the age of 65. At that time, it was an age when people were starting to put their feet up and taking life easy. But at the age of 65, as I say, in 1949, Pearl Good started to pray for a young Christian evangelist, a 31-year-old Christian evangelist, an evangelist who was conducting a mission in Los Angeles. That evangelist was Billy Graham. Now, Pearl felt called of God to pray for Billy Graham's evangelistic campaigns. And from that point on, she would travel to every city where a campaign was being held. There she would rent a room, and she prayed while the meetings were going on. She later estimated that she covered some 48,000 miles on buses, and that was before she started using uh, uh, planes. She rarely traveled overseas, but she always made it a point to be in prayer while Billy Graham was actually preaching, wherever it was in the world. And she continued her prayer ministry until her death at the age of 90. At her funeral, Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, she said these words. Here lie the mortal remains of much of the secret of Bill's ministry. And very few people have heard of Pearl Good. But can you see? Young and old, working together in partnership for the kingdom of God. So what about us? If we consider ourselves part of the older generation, will we nurture and inspire? Will we encourage and spur on those younger than us, but who want to serve the Lord faithfully? And if we consider ourselves part of the younger generation, will we listen to and respect? Will we Honor and be thoughtful towards those who have gone before, those who have trod the path we now wish to tread. Christian people, different generations, working together for the kingdom of God. That's one of the big lessons from 1 Samuel chapter 3. There's one final lesson that I want us to learn this evening, and it's this. It is vital, it is a vital thing to remain true to God's word. It is a vital thing to remain true to God's word. 
when God communicates his message to Samuel, it is indeed a message of judgment on Eli and his family. No wonder the young lad was reluctant to tell his mentor what God had said. But when Eli persuades him to tell him the whole truth, we read in verse 18 that Samuel, hiding nothing from him, tells Eli what God had said. He hides nothing from his mentor. And this provides us all with a huge challenge, doesn't it? Both as individuals and as God's people of the church, we are coming under huge pressure to tone down, to water down what we believe. It may be in relation to our, th our theology, maybe concerning the uniqueness of Christ, maybe concerning the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It may concern the eternal destiny of unbelievers. Or it may relate to ethical matters, our views on family life, on the right to die, on sexuality, on gender issues, and so on. Whether it's our theology or what we believe with regard to our ethics, we are be constantly being challenged to give ground, aren't we? And where does this pressure come from? It comes from society at large, the world about us. But it is not the world that should be setting our agenda, but the scriptures. It's not society that should be shaping our mindset, but God's word. It's not the ungodly who should be telling us what to believe, but the Bible. J.B. Phillips' famous translation of Romans 12.2 comes to mind at this point. Do you remember it? Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Or as Eugene Patterson puts it in his paraphrase, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Or perhaps more of us are familiar with the NIV's version. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. It's not easy. Of course it isn't. But God calls us to be ever faithful to his word. And the example of the young Samuel who declared God's word without fear or favor is there for us all to follow. There are three important lessons I think we can learn from this chapter, aren't there? Let us treasure God's word and hide its teaching in our hearts. Let's work together, young and old, honestly and prayerfully for the sake of the kingdom of God. 
And let us remain true to all the Bible's teaching, never flinching from all that it has to say to us. For the glory of the Lord Jesus. Amen.